Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Sam and Richard Baines stepped onto a jetty slick with damp. The tide, much lower now, lapped at smooth pylons. The muddy smell of mangroves was thick enough to chew. The Jerry Ecstasy sign hung forlornly in the sea mist. Sam took a deep breath and looked away. Not much ecstasy ahead, as far as he could see. They're never going to recover from this, Sam said. It's the end of the dream. One bloody week. That's all it took for the whole damn enterprise to go up in smoke. Poor bastards. He turned his eyes skywards, where a grey loom eased above the escarpment, beginning to cancel out the night, making way for the sun. He felt a deep pang of compassion for the naive group he'd left in the kitchen, struggling to make sense of a stupid freak accident caused by what could only have been a moment's lapse in concentration. Bad stuff happens fast. Wisdom from the Mrs Skettle, who'd seen their fair share of bad stuff. That poor bloke, Cameron, died trying to catch the rise of the moon. You couldn't fault him for that. Bloody terrible luck, though, whichever way you looked at it. Susan Duncan is the author of the best-selling memoir, Salvation Creek, along with two further novels, The Briny Cafe and Gone Fishing. Today, I'm talking to Susan Duncan about her new book, Sleepless in Stringy Bark Bay. Susan Duncan, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. Lovely to be here. In the opening pages of Sleepless in Stringy Bark Bay, readers are reacquainted with Etty Brookbank, who might be familiar from your to readers from your previous book, The Briny Cafe and Gone Fishing. And it immediately struck me that this book is about connectedness and life's continuity, and that The Briny Cafe is still at the heart of this book too. That's absolutely true. And I think one of the driving forces when I sit down to write a book is I, there is one particular theme And even if I try to escape it, I don't seem to be able to. And it's just that if you are part of a strong community, you are stronger. When you have the support of the people around you, then somehow anything feels possible and you don't feel alone and you don't feel isolated. Now, that community can drive you mad. It can prop you up. It can just hover on the fringes. But just knowing it's there and that's what I try to get across in these books, leads to, I think, a much richer life. And we're introduced to this rather quirky little town of Cook's Basin, a community of like-minded eccentrics with an unshakable belief that kindness had the power to pummel evil into oblivion. (laughs) Now, that sounds idyllic and wonderful, but why is everyone so happy in Cook's Basin? Well, I mean, when you live in a beautiful environment, which Cook's Basin is, it's a water access only community. So you're sort of cut off by this large moat from the the trials and tribulations and stresses, if you like, of the modern world. So you can 
even if you have to go into the modern world to earn a living or, you know, get by, when you come home, you can leave all that on, on shore. You can get in your boat. You can just cast off everything as you go across the water to go home. And you're in this idyllic situation where you can choose how you want to live, really. But the underlying motive of most people in this place is to care and to look after the environment. You know, everybody has their ups and downs and everybody goes through bad patches and good patches. Um, your neighbour can drive you nuts on one day and you can love them the next. It's it's People are normal. But there is an underlying sense of forgiveness in everyone because you have to get along when you live in a community that's cut off from the rest of the world. And if that means you have to learn to forgive a lot more than you would probably be able to, in a normal situation, then that's what you just have to do. Shortly after meeting Eddie again, we meet two of the central characters, Kate Jackson, a former journalist and cafe owner, connected socially and commercially to the town of Cook's Basin, along with her partner, Sam Scully. It's a relationship that's still in formation and there seem to be still some unresolved tensions between them. Well, I mean, who goes into a relationship without unresolved tensions? I think we all do. And exploring relationships I, I find endlessly fascinating because it's so easy to tip one way or the other and 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 we invest so much into relationships that I, th- I think we actually expect a lot in return. These two people are from different ends of the spectrum. Kate is, was a high-powered financial journalist and Sam is a man who earns a living on a working barge on the open sea. He's a practical, down-to-earth, common-sense kind of fellow who doesn't really have a lot in common with Kate, who was always operating at the high end of the financial world before she turned her back on it all. So they're having to find mutual areas where they can agree, and it's not easy Kate has very different expectations. Sam's simplicity really drives her nuts a lot of the time. So it, it's their relationship is a work in progress, and I think all relationships are a work in progress no matter how long they've been going. And, of course, Kate is somewhat emotionally damaged. She's had an unusual and um, troubled relationship with her mother. She has, and of course, anybody who's read my first book, Salvation Creek, will know that I draw on my own experience from that. I had a totally combative relationship with my mother, incendiary at times, but I loved her very much. I just didn't like her very much. By the way, whenever we had a battle, she always won, so uh, there's no reason to feel sorry for her. She was very tough and she died, I think, um, well, she died at the age of almost 96 which I don't think I'll ever forgive her for because with her death, most of my best material disappeared with us. She was a terrific character and I love characters. But the relationship between mothers and daughters I think is a very interesting one to explore. So I kind of have made it extreme in this case with Kate and her mother, which I think is what most authors do. You take splinters of your own life and then you push them out to the limits to make them interesting and dramatic. Uh, But there is always, I hope, 
truth, truth in the characters I write about, even if the events and the, the, the moments are fictitious. Kate and Sam are expecting a baby very soon. Now, that introduces a whole other level of complication to their lives and to their relationship. Well, it does, because Kate really has never seen herself as a mother and she fears hugely that she will turn into the kind of person her own mother was. So she's not just ambivalent about the arrival of this child, but she's 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 actually um, very fearful and wishes it wasn't going on, whereas Sam, whose parents died when he was very young and the community stepped in to look after him, Sam has done nothing but long for his own family to gather at the table or at Christmas and, and to not be one of the waifs and strays of the community um, who, who gather at, at Etty's table, look at the other cafe owner, at Christmas and for big events. So he's incredibly overwhelmed with joy and he doesn't quite understand why Kate is not as joyful or as involved. It, it sets up a, a dynamic in the relationship that causes the most enormous friction. As the book proceeds, the peace of Cook's Basin is disturbed when a group of 10 retirees arrive to set up an alternative living arrangement called Jerry Ecstasy. Now, that's nothing to do with methamphetamines, by the way. I didn't even think of that when I came up with that. <laughs> I live a very um, sheltered life, Crick. Just want to make it clear to all the listeners, of course. <laughs> it's geriatric combined with, it was kind of just a funny thing. We always used to talk about when I was much younger what we were going to do when we grew older. And we said, oh, let's just all get together and have Jerry ecstasy, geriatric fun, you know. And uh, I have to say that whole drug thing didn't hit me until about, I don't know, about a week ago when someone mentioned it. And I went, oh, dear, too late. This group of people, uh, they arrive in such a happy, welcoming town. But are they welcome? Are they Cook's Basin type of people? Well, they, they're doing the reverse of what sh most people do in Cook's Basin. When you get older and dealing with boats and tides and wind and weather gets to be too much for you. I don't know if you've ever tried to tie up a tinny in a gale force wind when it's pushing you off your dock. It's very, very hard and very physical. So the people of Cook's Basin are used to people leaving as they get older. They're not used to people moving in as they get older. And these, this group of five couples, they know nothing about boats. And they've chosen a very isolated part of a bay and they're not exactly the norm. Like they're all kind of well-dressed and trendy and one of them looks sort of hauntingly familiar to the people. They just look a little bit smart and, and, and sophisticated for the rest of Cook's Basin. But because it is a community that accepts you instantly the way you are and you have to prove that you are not somebody who is going to be welcomed by doing things that are uncommunity minded then everybody just sort of sits on the fence and says, well, we'll do what we can to help, but we'll just see how it all goes for a while. And the scene moves to a nearby bay, Stringy Bark Bay, and that gives us the title of this book. It's a place of mangroves and, and a little bit of mystery too, with a noticeably different atmosphere to Cook's Basin. 
And it's the place where a body is found floating in the water. Who is it and what are the consequences? Well, it's one of the inmates, as I call the people in Jerry Ecstasy. Uh, he, he, he's a country boy, didn't really know how to swim, and he's found floating in the water. And the reason I've chosen that kind of a lo- isolated location is because it's part of the plot that unfolds as it goes further on. But there is actually a bay that I know very well with those mangroves that I've seen on a moonlit night. And they do look like spirits dancing in the night. And the water does at certain times of the day turn this magnificent turquoise. There is a beautiful little sandy beach and a lovely little creek that runs down into this lagoon. And I find landscape irresistible to write about. I mean, I'm overwhelmed by landscape wherever I go, and it's what I look for more than... I never look for a coffee shop, by the way. I always look for a beautiful place to sit and to look and to breathe in. I love that bay that I knew very well, and I really wanted to write about it, and it gave me that sort of ghostly feeling that I wanted to bring into the book and that 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 kind of sense of isolation and sense of the Australian bush and the smell of the bush and the, those funny little flowers that grow everywhere, but you really have to look at or, or try to find. They're tiny. You know, the Australian bush doesn't whack you over the head with splendid camellia-like flowers. You really need to look into everything to to find the beauty in in miniature and I love, I love that part. I love it because it, it forces you to look at the details. And as soon as you look at the details, you realise you're just a little speck of sand in the sense of time passing. We're here for a minute. And, and it's a landscape that goes on and on. And there's a kind of magical quality to Stringy Bark Bay and Cook's Basin as well. Um, it's full of all the good things in life, I suppose. Love, good food, community, a dash of mystery. And you explore that through the inner life of your characters. It sounds like a fabulous recipe for a good life. If I hadn't moved to Pittwater when I did, which was 23 years ago, I think I'd probably be dead. Um, I was alone, widowed. My brother had died and I'd just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I moved to this little part of Lovett Bay without really understanding what I was doing. The community, just my neighbours, just their everyday kindnesses, without being asked for anything in return, it was just natural and intrinsically human, the best part of a human, I think. And it gave me courage to go through all the treatment that you have when you have cancer. And it gave me a reason to keep going because I found a place for the first time in my life where I felt I belonged and belonging is such a big part of understanding who you are. So I'll always be grateful to Pittwater and the community and I'll always celebrate what what that place is to me. You also take responsibility for the fact that this book might be responsible for a legion of retirees moving to Pittwater? (laughs) The whole point of this book is to... To, to show that there are many different ways to handle ageing. And I did meet some people who, who live near us where Bob and I also have a farm, currently in drought again. And I met a group of 
people, four couples, who had pooled their resources to live their retirement in the way that they wanted to without having to go into um, accommodation that was regulated by corporate bodies. And I thought, what a great idea this is. But I thought, I wonder if it's really easy or if it's got a lot of things that you have to understand. So they very kindly, again, uh, let me come and talk to them and to find out how they made it work. So in effect, there's almost a blueprint for how to do it in, in the sleepers in Stringy Bark Bay if people want to do it because retirement villages don't suit everyone. Um, over 50s living doesn't suit everyone. A lot of us have, have, are independent thinkers, but, I mean, it was also part of, you know, Bob and I sitting down in front of the fire one night in winter and I was saying, well, we can't keep farming forever because we're getting old. And he's he looked at me and he knows how I feel about any kind of organised life. And he looked at me and said, oh, what about a retirement village? And I I just looked at him and laughed and then I thought about it and I thought, actually, we're over the age already. They won't let us in, so we're going to have to come up with some other alternative. And this seemed to me to be a very clever way, provided you have that core friendship and you understand each other and you've been friends for so long. I don't know. I find it much easier to forgive my friends for anything and they find it, I believe, easier to forgive me for anything and I do family. Family, I find it's a lot harder. Susan, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Well, thank you, Greg. Wonderful questions. You forced me to think about things. I've been talking to Susan Duncan about her new book, Sleepless in Stringy Bark Bay. It's published by Alan and Unwin and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.